This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to this episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. And uh, joining me on the phone this time, it is legendary Yes singer John Anderson. His Thousand Hands World Tour commences or restarts on July 24th or... In our case, tomorrow. Now, I will say this about the interview. First of all, John was absolutely delightful. I think we were given 15 or 20 minutes, and it went on for about 45. So kudos to John for for being so gracious. Now, if you were with me last week on Mitch Marathon Month, I interviewed Stone Temple Pilots uh, singer Jeff Gutt, or Goot. And uh, I had to do it while I was on the road, and I had to use the internal mic on the computer. And the interview went great. And Blabbermouth and Loudwire and Tone Deaf and all kinds of sites picked up the uh, Jeff interview. And this interview with John was done on exactly the same day. In fact, I did John first and then I did Jeff. I think I did John at one uh, thirty, and then Jeff at 3. Anyway... So I had to use the same uh, setup, the uh, computer's internal mic. Listen, I, I was on the road, and so, but the interview's great. You know, uh, you hear the guests the same way as any other week. The only thing that you'll notice is that I'm a little less present in the mix. And I'm sure if you ask my wife, she'd be like, yeah, less Mitch talking's probably a good thing. So anyway, uh, I just wanted to say, uh, to say that. So uh, the interview is coming up, 45 minutes. And um, I'm pretty sure you're going you're gonna to love it. Uh, John was just absolutely uh, terrific. And of course, uh, you can head over to johnanderson1000hands.com for more information about the uh, new album and tour. And it's John Anderson. And it's, it's 1000, like 1000hands.com. So uh, check that out. And uh, while you're there on the internet, open another window. Click a new tab or whatever and uh, go over to loudtracks.com forward slash Mitch to pick up a gorgeous, gorgeous Mitch uh, Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon t-shirt and, and be the envy of all your neighbors and friends. You know, uh, the Washington Post earlier this week had an article written by someone who was apparently very, very grumpy about how um, he doesn't like going to outdoor shows. Now, uh, you know, listen, my experience at outdoor shows is somewhat skewed. Uh, I generally have some kind of pass or some kind of guest pass, and I get to go backstage, and, and I get to have, uh, you know, air-conditioned bathrooms and usually access to, to drinks, you know, water or Gatorade or whatever. Uh, so I don't have necessarily the same experience as, um, as the writer. Well, let's be fair about that. But to me, you know, listen, a show is a show is a show. Would I ever do a show just sitting up in the grass where I'm praying that it doesn't rain or I'm praying that it's not too hot? No, um, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> That might sound a little snobby, but no, I'm not going to go sit in the grass and hoping, you know, that, that I don't go home soaking wet. Uh, not going to happen. Um, and, you know, some of the larger festivals uh, around around here and in Europe, they, they, they basically 
stick you in a in a field, a nice dusty field, and you get to spend 12 hours baking or freezing or getting wet. Uh, yeah, not for me. Not for me. I'm an arena guy. You know, summer sheds are great as long as I'm sitting under the roof and, and arena. You know what? I think I'm sounding as grumpy as the writer, uh, but, but huh, I, I don't want to be because I love shows. A show is a show is a show. I'll take any show over no show. Let's, let's be clear about that. But kind of curious as to what you, the fan thinks, um, you know, are, are we being a little too uh, wishy-washy about complaining about the weather? I mean, you know, is it kind of cool to be in a downpour while Metallica plays? Oh, probably. It's always cool when Metallica plays. But uh, anyway, do go check out that article from the Washington Post. If you can't find it, head over to my Twitter on um, what day did I post that? Uh, well, in fact, July 22nd, yesterday. You know, scroll through my July 22nd feed on Twitter or Facebook or the Rock Talk with Mitch Lafon Facebook uh, on a July 22nd. Posted it early in the morning, so so go check, you know, the post that I did before noon and and read that article. Respond there if you want. Uh, I'd love to know what you think. But, uh, okay, I think I'm like the writer. Ultimately, I prefer an arena show. You know, um, I saw Guns N' Roses last year three times outdoors and i'm not sure i'd go again if it wasn't in the arena if it's not going to be at least in my case the the bell center in montreal i don't know if i really want to go stand outside i mean around here it's a pain in the ass you know the outdoor venues don't have any parking around you have to park in the city and then take a subway out the the sites are only accessible by subway and so you it becomes a whole adventure and if you want to leave, it becomes an adventure. And uh, um, yeah, I got to say, now I'm rambling, but you know what? If it, if it's not for a pass, yeah, give me an arena show. Okay, all right, writer in the Washington Post, and I forget your name, uh, and I do apologize, but um, okay, arena shows win, indoor shows win, club shows win. Uh, but uh, anyway, uh, John Anderson. Thousand Hands World Tour, great content, great interview. Uh, first show in Woodstock, New York. I was actually going to go to that show, but uh, something came up and I can't. And and unfortunately, I won't be in any of the shows uh, around any of the other shows that he's playing. But hopefully after September 1st, he'll come back and do some more shows. But here we are. Uh, John Anderson, 1000hands.com. And here we go. My interview with the one, the only, the unique John Anderson. We are speaking with the singer John Anderson. The new album is 1,000 Hands. John, always, always a pleasure to talk to you. And of course, your tour starts here in uh, July, on July 24th in uh, Woodstock, New York. How are you? I'm very good, Mitch. Good to hear you. Yeah, so before we get into the album, because I, I really want to dig deep on that. Um, over the years, uh, you've had these uh, health issues that have come up that have been very public. How are you doing health-wise? Are, are you back to being 100%? Yeah, very, very good. I mean, everybody goes through it, especially when they're 60. There's a 60 to 70 sort of period where most people go through a lot of tough times physically, and I went through them. And now I'm in my 70, I'm 75 next month, in October, I think. And I feel really great. 
Can't wait to get back on the road and do some more shows. I'm writing music every day. I'm doing singing this morning. I get up every morning. I love to get up and sing in the studio. I have a little cottage, and I got my studio there, and I just uh, have a great time every morning singing. Oh, great. So, so let's talk about A Thousand Hands, Chapter One. This is an album that you started back in the 90s, and it's got uh, Steve Howe on it. It's got Alan White on it. It's got a whole bunch of other players. Talk to me about uh, the genesis of this project and why you started it and then why it got shelved and how did we get back to revisiting it almost 30 years later? Well, it's, it's a phenomenon for me that I've been doing music over the past 20 years and I still haven't finished half of it or actually a lot of it. And it's just uh, percolating. So sometimes you, you, you create music and then get on with life and tours and uh, do another album. And I've got four projects that I really believe in that, uh, you know, one of them is five hours long and the other ones are two hours, three hours long concept albums. And I know they're not going to get finished for another 10 years and that's life. But uh, getting back to 1000 Hands, I started recording it in 1990 in Big Bear and uh even got Chris Squire and Alan White to play on a couple of tracks at that time. And uh, it never got finished because uh, life takes over. And uh, I put the tapes in my garage. And uh, I had the best time, to be honest, when I was up in Big Bear with my friend Brian Chatton and a few other musicians. And uh, I've never laughed as much in my life making an album. But we put the tapes in my garage for 26 years. It's unbelievable. And uh, until this producer, Michael Franklin, got in touch and said, let's finish the album. So I said, okay, then, yeah. And thankfully, he seemed to know so many people from Ian Anderson to Chick Corea, Billy Cobham, uh, Tower of Power, and all these great, like Coriel, all these great musicians. And he put them on the album. So in a way bringing in a producer helped to push it forward and uh, we, we finished the album just uh, six months ago and uh, we're just about to find a record company. So, uh, you know, the business these days isn't as clear as, as it used to be in the 60s and 70s and 80s, but now we've found a record company that really believes in the album. Everybody who's heard it love it. The reviews around the world Every 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 other day, I get a, a review from Paris, a review from England, Sweden, even Argentina. You know, people love the album, so it, I can't be doing too many too many bad things with this. No, it, it does sound great. When you take the tapes sort of out of the out of the garage and you and you put them on, and you listen to them. How much of the sort of original tapes made it to the final product, and how much do you? go back and rethink it and say, ooh, that needs this part, or ooh, that part didn't work. And, you know, how much of it is tinkered with and how much is really what was recorded back then? I think uh, two-thirds of everything we did, we kept. And uh, that's a lot of six tracks, actually. And that fulfilled the idea. And there was one track called Now that I listened to over and over, kept saying, you know, it's three minutes long. It doesn't, it doesn't hang in for three minutes. So we start with one minute at the beginning of the album, one minute in the middle, and one minute at the end of now. So you have now reappearing throughout the album. And that helps to sort of solidify the album. And one thing I must say, 
My voice sounds really good at the moment, and it sounds exactly the same as the songs that, that I recorded in the 90s. And, I, and we kept old vocals from the 90s recordings, plus I'd, I'd sing along, do some harmonies, uh, maybe change a couple of lyrics along the way. And uh, it's very interesting that the album was made uh, prior to um, a lot of voting going on. So the, the Activate Me song is all about uh, voting. Activate, you know, really, come on, let's wake up. And we're going through that now. So we've got to wake up and realize who's running this country and why. You know, it's so mismanaged on many levels and very confusing to a lot of people. And I'm an American now for 10 years, and I want a great America, a beautiful America, a sort of America that believes in what it started off to be, which was uh, all people from all over the world coming here and being able to come here and, and be part of the American dream. I finished my political statement, and I'm not running for mayor. Sorry. Well, it's all good. And and I'm up in Canada. I'm up in Montreal. And of course, Montreal has been a big supporter of Yes and everything that you've done over the years. Uh, you did mention that the album is going to come out and you found a record company, but it has been available sort of through, for the lack of a better word, direct marketing through your website or, you know, for people who came to shows. Talk to me about yeah. about the direct approach and working with fans. And then I want to sort of work my way into the survival and other stories because I, I love the fact that you're a hands-on guy and that you use the technology, you know, for good in a sense, right? Where we're, we're talking to fans, we're having um, – but, but talk to me about having the album available first and – when it comes out on a record company, does it change a little bit? Is there a bonus track, or do they still get that? And then just comment on, on that. Okay, well, basically, when we, we knew we were touring, uh, we made some CDs and albums and made it available, but it was like self-releasing because no record company was that interested because, hey, who wants to, to get a guy who's nearly 75? You know, what what is he going to do to, you know, to the music world? And I just think, I'm going to get out there and do some great performances. And like you say, Canadian people have always loved what Yes has done. I love Canada so much. And I was trying to get the, the, the agent to get us up to Canada with this show, but he just couldn't get his act together. So I don't know what we're going to do about the agent from now on. Well, you you talk to me. I, I know some promoters. We'll, we'll help you out. Please, please. You know, I'd love to come up there. Absolutely. And one of the things I must say about Canada they really are very progressive people, and the, the government is very progressive. And thank God that they ask for forgiveness to the Inuit Indians and the Indians of uh, the northern parts of America. And that's that's a big thing that America here, this this America, the Trump America, hasn't got a clue what they're doing in terms of interracial understanding, because we are all interconnected through the indigenous people. Anyway, I won't get into that one, but the idea of making sure that the album was available on the road, uh, we made CDs and made some albums, and uh, you just want people to be able to listen to the album. That's the main thing. When it's come to a show, you know, the, the energy we get from the audiences are fantastic. We, we just have a great time. So so let me move over quickly here, and, and we'll get back to the tour and stuff, but but Survival and Other Stories that came out in 2011 uh, on July 26th, yeah. so we're almost celebrating eight years. 
you you took to the website uh, and you told folks, send me your music and I'm going to turn it into an album. How was that process for you? Was that a very rewarding process to and and incredible? Also, okay, and, and creativity in terms of creativity, did did, did you hear incredible. stuff? Okay, so please talk to me about that. Carry on if you want to say something. Go for it. No, well, I was just going to say in terms of creativity, because, you know, when you're a musician and you've done yes and you've done this and you've done sort of things for the last 50 years, yeah. you get into yeah. a comfort zone and, and a pattern and you like these sounds and that sound. And then somebody sends you a sound through your website, through Survival, and you go, oh, I never would have thought of that. So was, so was it rewarding, first of all, to work with fans? But was it also rewarding musically where you sort of had an awakening and went, oh, well, will you listen I'm, to that? Yeah. Yeah, it's a constant awakening because uh, when we could pass through the internet MP3, which was about 2004, I got in touch with Chris and Steve and said, hey, let's make music together, guys, you know, and, you know, we can do it through the internet. And, like, I never heard from them for six months. So I thought, well, obviously they don't care that much about doing it this way. So I just put an advert on my website and I got hundreds of people sending me one minute of their music. And now I've got a pool of maybe 20 people that I'm in touch with all the time creating music on different levels. And uh, as I said before, you know, I've got projects that will probably take another five years to finish, another 10 years maybe. But they're incredible projects because when you, you work with somebody from France who has a different technique in music, it inspires me to sing a different style of song even write stories around the music. I'm working with, you know, half a dozen people on, on these projects. And every now and again, somebody will send me a piece of music. Uh, there's a guy in uh, Brazil sends me a lovely guitar piece of music, and I'll write a song for him and send it back. I'm not sure what's going to happen with it, but it, it inspires me. And all these musicians inspire me. And so every... Every other day, I, I receive some music, and, and it's fantastic to wake up to new music and new styles and stuff. Do you see yourself doing another album of that genre, or not genre, but with that concept where, where fans send stuff in and, and you get involved and they make another album? Yeah. Uh, as, as I mentioned, I've, I've been writing a project with a, a guy who lives in France. Uh, I call him El Chris because he's a wonderful guy. and. Uh, I've been writing a story to the dozen songs we wrote together. And uh, the story is based on ideas that I have. And I've done this three or four times now with different people. But it takes a while to decide, is the story uh, correct? Is the, the music sounds great, but the story isn't quite finished. I need to extend it. And then some guy comes along and wants to do illustrations for the story, make it into a sort of a comic book. That's another project called Violin Stories. So these things happen. And uh, it's as though I'm surrounded by ideas and musical ideas and adventurous musical ideas, some even for theater. But at this moment in time, I don't know the right people in theater to be able to perform and put together projects uh, like that. So maybe in the next five years, I'll bump into the right people at the right time. Well, let's hope. Um, talk to me about about the need to make new music because you've you've been around, uh, you know, for for over fifty years professionally. 
you could easily go out and, and put yes on, on, on the marquee or John Anderson on the marquee and play an evening of greatest hits. And yet you, you strive to make new music. You have, as you've described, all these projects. What drives you to, to do that? Why not just say, hey, I've done it. I'm going to go sing Owner of Lonely Heart. Leave me alone. Oh, <laughs> that's really good. I like that. Actually, that wouldn't work for me. Um, it, 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 would, it would stop my energy. And uh, I must tell you, I went to see the movie yesterday, uh, a couple of weeks ago, and it changed my whole, blew my mind, actually. I cried all the way through. I don't know why. As soon as the guy played yesterday, and then he did uh, another Beatles song. It was, it was a, it's an it's a, it's a incredible story. It really is. Fantastic uh, recordings of, of the songs. I mean, I, I couldn't, I couldn't figure out why I was crying all the way through it. And then it took me a couple of days later. Oh yes, of course. I'm so grateful for Dad, the Beatles. I'm so grateful for them because without them, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. And that's what it is. Because me and my brother in 1963, there was a record on the radio called Love Me Do. And we'd heard about the Beatles out of Liverpool. And uh, people were talking about them like crazy. My brother had a motorbike and he said, let's go and see them. So they were playing just outside of Liverpool. And we lived about two hours away. So we rode on the motorbike to see the Beatles in this uh, sort of theater. Everybody was standing. Uh, mostly men, guys, young teenagers. I said men were guys. You know, mostly guys. A lot of, a lot of girls at the front screaming at the end of the song. They wouldn't scream in, during the course of the song. They just listened, and the band was so damn good. And they played their first album all the way through, Chuck Berry songs and Sorrel songs, and unbelievable to, to be in the company of that energy. And then me and my brother, we just started a band six months earlier. And uh, so that's why when I, when I saw the movie yesterday, uh, it took me back to that moment in time when I first saw the Beatles and what they did to me and what they inspired me to be, which is what I am now, a musician, that I don't care about um, going out and doing the hits because I've only had three, <laughs> three or four. But the idea is to be always ex expanding your, your consciousness musically and, and that's what uh, dreams are made of yeah and that's what you keep doing so uh, well let me talk to you because you since you mentioned the beatles you you did cover every little thing on the very first uh, yes album uh the band yeah. the band forms in 1968 in august of 68 which is when i was born so i have an affinity yeah. i have an affinity for yes you're you're the band that was formed in my month but <laughs> Talk to me a, a little bit about the musical evolution because, you know, at the time you've got the Beatles, you've got uh, the Rolling Stones, there's Elvis Presley around the corner, you, you know, there's, there's sort of this pop-rocky kind of thing going, and, and Yes's music is, is more complicated, more diverse, you're not doing two-and-a-half-minute singles, you're doing longer songs. Um, was there a sort of risk to, to be Yes in that environment? No. Not, not one bit. It was the idea, the door is opened and uh, there was no barriers anymore about music because I was listening then to, you know, Frank Zappa as well as, um, when I'm thinking about uh, Neil Young's band, that was, uh, I can't remember the name now. 
But uh, you know, you listen uh, to old music. Cra- crazy Horse, right? Neil Young and the Crazy Horse. Crazy Horse. No, before that, when he was with. Uh, oh, oh, Buffalo Springfield. Canadian. Sorry. Was it Buffalo Springfield? Buffalo Springfield. Yeah, Buffalo go. Springfield. All these bands that were happening in the late sixties uh, inspired me to sort of, you know, and there were some great writers that uh, you know, inside my paper cup was a guy, Jimmy Webb, who did an album with, uh, gosh, Fifth Dimension. And we actually did a couple of those songs in our first Yes shows. And of course, the Beatles uh, extended the song. We rearranged America a year later. A great song by Paul Simon. So there was really so much happening that there was no sort of... Uh, consciousness to make a hit single because I felt I was too old for one thing to be a pop star and it just didn't really ring with me uh, or Chris Squire or the guys in the band that we wanted to be pop stars. It was only years later that we had one hit which was Roundabout. We, we wanted to make great albums. I think it's probably because uh, you know Pete Townsend did the, the incredible um the Who album. What was that called? Gosh, my memory is sinking here. Um, Tommy. Tommy, yeah. And these these kind of things are happening, and it all evolves through uh, the incredible time of '67 with Sgt. Pepper. Uh, you know, what um, you experience, Jimi Hendrix, and all these kind of musicians coming through with albums like uh, the Beach Boys, the Stones, and everybody expanding their musical idea that. An album is an album, not just uh, have a hit single and the rest is just, uh, oh, let's put it just stuff, you know. No, you make an album of music, you go through that experience. And that was the joy of BES for many, many years. It, it was always an adventure. Uh, sometimes we, we were riding very high and sometimes we screwed up. But that's life. You can't be perfect all the time. You try to do your best all the time. Was was there because you look at at some of the the song lengths? You're you're at six minutes, eight minutes, nine minutes, and then and then we get close to the edge where all of a sudden it's a it's an entire side. How did how did record companies react to that? Were they telling you to, hey boys, get get it down to three minutes, or you were just not a singles band and your your thing was about performing live? And the record company is like, okay, make these albums. We'll get you on tour, and that's how we'll market you. How did they react to Yes? It was We were very lucky that Atlantic Records, Armour Ertigan, who was the head of Atlantic, was, he started Atlantic Records because he loved making uh, collecting records. You know? So he had jazz records, blues records. He, he, he helped to uh, record Alita Franklin, Ray Charles, jazz musicians, anybody. And then Yes came along, and it's like, you carry on doing what you're doing, John, sort of thing. And uh, there were times when the manager would come up and say, I think the record company would like to do another fragile album like Roundabouts and things like that. And I said, get lost. You're the manager. We're the musicians. We're going to do a large-scale piece of music called Andrew and I. And then, oh boy, we're going to do Close to the Edge. And so on and so on. Because you're inspired to be doing great, different kinds of music. Audiences would sit there and listen very, very quietly. You could hear a pin drop in with 20,000 people. It was unbelievable. You know, that people would just sit there and listen to Close to the Edge all the way through. And it was like it inspired the band to perform it 
it was as great as we could ever ever get. And then we put on a visual show. We got the laser beams happening. You know, you're putting on a a whole concept idea, and that's what Yes did, and many other bands did all the way through the seventies. And that was the the great awakening in music. And then the punks came, <laughs> punk and disco, and we just kept going. It's so funny. How did how did the album Close to the Edge change things for the band? Because and and correct me if I'm wrong, but to me that's sort of like the demarcation point, the the one where you went, okay, they have a good band, good band, we've got some great album, and then this one comes out and it's like, oh, now we've got something different, unique. This is yes, this is a whole new musical entity. This this is, I mean, am I right? Is that sort of the one that that was like the turning point where it was just yeah, yeah. And thank you for those kind words because after we finished the album. Bill Brooks had left the band. <laughs> he did my head in. Because I thought we'd created a masterpiece that uh, was far beyond my dreams, in a way. And then Bill said, I'm leaving the band. And I said, why? He said, because I want to join King Crimson. I said, why? <laughs> so then I had doubts about the whole idea of doing a long piece of music. But then I got more inspired. I read a book and wanted to do photographic portions and take it a little bit further. And then, then again, you go you go on these musical adventures and you, you feel like you're being pushed in this direction as some energy that surrounds us all. You know, you, you, you just don't do it, uh, you know, tying everybody up and making them play this music. You know, you know Chris was into it. Steve was into it. Alan was into it at that time. In topographic, wasn't so into it. He was doing uh, Six Wives of the Angry the Eight at the same time. Nobody was like getting on with their life. So, as I said uh, the other day, uh, if we hadn't done sort of topographic courses, I don't think we'd have got to awaken. And awaken to me is one of those glorious moments where no matter what, no matter what, whenever I hear that, I know it's a great piece of music, whether it's Commercial enough is not the point. <laughs> I do see that we have about seven minutes left, so I'm, boy, I'd love to explore more. But I'm just going to get over here since we were talking about technology with that other. No, album. carry on. Let's, let's good. We'll carry on. There's no rush. Good. Good. Well, thank you for that. Uh, but, um, but I'm going to ask you about nine zero one two five because you, you know with the uh, that other album we mentioned before, you had fans send music and you had this participation and stuff. But with nine zero one two five. We had the advent of MTV and music videos. How yeah. did how did that change the band in terms of again record company expectations, band expectations, and then having a hit with "Owner of a Lonely Heart"? I remember very specifically sitting in front of the TV, seeing that video, and going, "Ooh, who is that? I like that." <laughs> what? <laughs> and, and, you know, that that, again, was a new chapter for the band, because now you were getting people uh, like me at the time who was, you know, maybe too young to go to shows or, or, or unable to to maybe see you, you know, while you're touring in London. Here I am sitting in Montreal. But now you're in my living room every day. Um, how did that affect the band and what you started doing musically? Well, the interesting thing at that time was technology it was really expanding. At uh, the beginning of the 80s, and I was hearing music um, by this producer called Trevor Horn, 
he did an album with Malcolm McLaren, who was the manager of the punk rock uh, Sex Pistols, and he'd done a, an album called Duck Rock, and it was magnificent. It was like a, a movie on, TV, on, 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 on a record to me. And uh, there was another lot of sampling going on, which was a new concept in, in music. You could sample, uh, you know, big band sounds or uh, as, as we did with uh, Horn of Lonely Heart, as samples of um, James Brown. All that sort of James Brown samples. And uh, when I first heard the recordings, I was in happy shock. Because Chris called me up and said, where, where are you, John? I was in South of France at the time. I was writing music about the artist Mark Chagall, one of the projects that's uh, lying in wait for people to hear and see. And uh, I, I went to London and met up with Chris, and he played me the tracks. And I said, my God, these are incredible. And that was one of the lonely hearts, heart, so all these uh, vocalizing things that they'd done. I was mesmerized. And he said... Look, John, we'd like you to sing on the record. And I just said, oh, my God, this is perfect for me. I didn't tell him that. <laughs> I just thought, this is perfect, because they gave me free reign to write lyrics and choruses here and there. One of them, Only Heart, was already a hit in the minds of the record company. We'd already said, that's going to be a hit. We're going to make it a hit around the world. And that's the power of record companies. You know, they spend a lot of promotioning, you know, that kind of thing. And all of a sudden, people started to love On a Lonely Heart. It was one, number one around the world. And it was a great life, a great experience to go through. It didn't change my perception of music. It just changed my sort of love of the business. And, you know, to be number one around the world is a great experience to go through. It's very, very spinal tap. <laughs> well, well, no, but it's a, it is a great experience, and it, it was a great video, and it it did, you know, it it took a, a Montrealer out of his little comfort zone and and showed him something new. So, uh, you know, thank God for for well, yeah. much music in our case, not MTV, but some great music and visuals videos like uh, Aha, which is a Swedish band, and then Police oh, I, came along. I know them. You know, they took yeah, they they took, took uh, the world by storm. And uh, the MTV made it happen for them. So we had a great experience with uh, Corner of the Lonely Heart with MTV. But then we did Big, Big Generation. And by then, you know, MTV ruled the world. And the only way to get a, a hit record was to make a video. So we'd make videos for MTV and they'd turn them back. And... Uh, so you get into a situation that I just started thinking, I don't want to do this all the time. This is not fair. So by the end of the 80s, I went and did ABWH, which was a great experience for me because it was getting back to my musical roots in a way with Steve and Bill and the Quakers. So I was able to sort of jump ship the big generators. I'm going back to the reality of music rather than trying to make a hit record. And that's the way things are. And the great thing about uh, videos is that you got to learn the term uh, recoupment costs, uh, which, right? Because that's, <laughs> yeah, that's when yeah, they right. that, that's that's when your vocabulary expanded, and you go, "What do you mean?" Anyway, uh, just quickly, uh, been last, there. Yeah, you've been there. Right? We we know what that's all about. Um, 
quintessential, and I, I'm, I'm able to say the word, quintessential, yes, the 50th anniversary tour. Um, talk to me about that real quick. It, of course, uh, has come to an end. Will there be more yes with you and Trevor and Rick? And, you know, there, there was there was a little bit of debate online about should the band use the, na- the name yes? And, of course, well, why not? Um, I agree. Yeah. Uh, so, I think... Uh... The, the, there's definitely something to be made, yes. And 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 I I was talking to a friend of mine who's been in the business forever, and in this music world, there's not many people that I talk to because I just get on with my work because I'm I'm just too busy making and creating. But I spoke to him last year about making a, 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 a the the perfect not the perfect yes album but the best yes album that's that's going to finish the idea of yes. And I said, maybe 2020 is a good time to do it. Maybe it's it, it's in the air. I, I sense the idea of doing a couple of long pieces of music and some, you know, fire and thunder and lightning pieces of music. And I've written a couple of things that uh, I think would work. But it's, it's finding the right time, the right place, and the right people to join in and do it. And that's that's... In the, in, in the lack of the gods, as they say. Well, uh, let's hope they, they shine upon you. And, and let me just sort of combine the new album, A Thousand Hands, with, with my next question. So, so Steve is on it. Alan White is on it. I'm assuming that you had to reach out to them to, have, you know, to get permission to use their work. In fact, did you have to reach out to Steve, Alan, and say, hey, I'm putting out this album. May I use these tracks that we recorded all these years ago? Uh, well, it, it was Chris and, and Alan that played on the track years and years ago, right. and I got their permission. Okay. Uh, but Steve just played on the track uh, in December. Oh. Just now. Uh, we were finishing the album, and the last track we were sorting out whether we wanted to use it. And I said, there's a certain part in the last third of the song where it's just sort of, nothing's happening. So I should ask Steve to play on it, because that could help. And he, he played on it. It's called Now and Again, actually. And uh, so when he played on it, all I could do was, uh, I've got to sing on it. So I, I sang this song to him about who we've been in our life and what we've created in our life. And we've been friends forever. And that was a, a very warm feeling that I had when I sang that. And uh, I'm, I'm sure that Steve felt the same way. And I even thought maybe... I'll get in touch with Steve next year and uh, maybe do some work together. You never know. You never know in this life what's going to happen next. Well, and I just know. Sorry? Oh, I was just going to say, and, that, and that's what I was sort of going to get to is, uh, you know, do, do you see yourself working with the guys again? Now, I have to admit, I thought the, the work with Steve had been done back in the 90s. And, it, and you were, so it's even more exciting to know that it was done like six months ago or seven months ago. The, um, yeah. That, which is, it sort of warms the cockles of your heart as a as a fan to know, hey, these guys don't hate each other. They're not at each other's throats. So no, 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 no. Oh, good. It's like, believe me, it's it's very much like family. You know, family never get on all the time, but when we get on, we love each other. You know, and no matter what, when we did um, the Hall of Fame, I couldn't wait to see Bill. It was amazing, and he broke my heart. When he left the band. 
But I always loved the guy. You know, I always loved what he did with Earthworks and Zap and with uh, King Crimson. So you bump into them again, and you want to hug them because you know we're all, we're all from the same world. We're musicians, and we're sort of bro- musical brothers. And he never leaves you. Good. So, so, so. Hopefully, in twenty twenty, maybe, maybe we can get everybody back together and 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 do something. Whether it's an album or a show or a tour or anything, I think I, you know, it, it would be nice to sort of put the cherry on top at the end, you know, and just say, hey, I think, I think so. I'll give you a call when it starts, okay? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Please, and then I'll, I'll finish with this because I, I know that that we're already over our time, but in. 1976, July 24th. So we're we're going to be celebrating. What's our math on that? 43 years, right? I guess for uh, Eli- Elias of Sunhillow, if I said it correctly. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing a couple of tracks on the new show that I'm doing, which really is great. Well, good, and I'm hoping to be there on. In fact, on July 24th, your tour starts, so it'll be 43 years to the day. But just quickly on that first album, I, I just want to know what was sort of the point where you got in your career and you said, "Okay, I've got yes, we're doing great, but I just want to go out and do this by myself and and have a, a different voice than what's going on with yes and and say something musically that is different than yes." What was it? Uh, was it born out of frustration? Was it born out of excitement? Was it born out of boy? I just got so much music that I just uh, I can't do one album a year with yes. I've got to do more. Where did that come from? <laughs> well, because well, you're you're, no, you're prolific. It's interesting. Yeah, it was interesting at that time. I bumped into an old friend uh, who actually was the producer on the second Yes album, Tony Colton. He was in a band called Heads, Hands, and Feet, a very very good band. So I always got on with Tony, and uh, it was like in whatever the the year nineteen seventy six when. He came by the house and he, he said, I've just spent uh, three months at music school learning to play the piano and learning to write music. And I went, oh, my God, that's what I should be doing. Back in my mind, I'm thinking that. And then I thought, how can, I'm, I'm not, I wasn't very good at school. So how can I teach myself about music? And I collected these instruments and I had them in my garage. And I thought, well, why don't I write, write an album? and I'll learn all the instruments. So that's what I did. I started writing the songs and the story and learning to play instruments for a period of three months and uh, made this album called Elias of Sun Hill. And that's how it happened. It's just a feeling that I needed to go to school or, or musical university or something like that. And that's what I did. And I learned so much by creating all the instruments and, the, and singing all the songs and harmonies. And, and the album is totally me as a human being. And I, and I felt very, very, uh, I went through hell and high water to do it. It wasn't like that easy. There was a certain point I thought I'd gone crazy. And I woke up one morning having tried to mix something for a week. I had tried to mix one piece of music for a week. It just wouldn't sink in. There was all this, uh, Technically speaking, the tracks would not play with each other for some reason, and I and I and I must have been mixing it like twenty times a day for a week, and my engineer had to go home; he couldn't stand it anymore. And I woke up in the morning, one morning, the sun was shining through the garage windows, 
And I said, what happened last night? And I went, wait a minute. Oh, I tried to mix it at one o'clock in the morning. So I went over and I played it through. And it was perfect. <laughs> I couldn't believe that everything was in time with each other. And that I just sat down and cried. And, and, and I was on the verge of madness. And then out of that, and then I got the album finished. And it was like, I felt like I'd got a diploma in musicianship. <laughs> Something like that. Well, you know, anybody who can sort of self-teach themselves the uh, the sitar deserves a, 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 a diploma for his wall because that that is one. Thank you. That is one tough <laughs> instrument. You. Yeah. So so you, uh, if I come down to the July twenty four show, I'll bring you a diploma for your wall for for learning the sitar, and uh, I will remind folks that uh, the new album Thousand Hands is uh, coming out or or. or Depending if you go to a show, it's probably available. You can go to johnanderson.com. The tour runs July 24th to uh, September 1st. No Canadian dates, but we are going to change that. We are, we are going to have to make that happen because we need you in For Canada. Sure. And, For sure. In fact, I'll just I'll, I'll, I'll end on this. It's just really well, a little Canadian content. Fans up here uh, in Canada have always been early to embrace bands like Styx. Bands like Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, um, sort of bands that are outside of you know the hit single kind of thing, and there was a great, great, great appreciation for yes, you could come here and play the Montreal Forum. You probably could have done a residency back in the seventies. What was it? About? <laughs> I mean, quite frankly, you probably could have. What was it about uh, Canada, but specifically Quebec, where just fans went, yeah, we like these guys, and we will. Did you get a sense of, of anything, any kind of special like uh, connection where you just went, oh, okay, there's I something going on? I, I have a story, Mitch. I got this story uh, in the mid-'80s. Um, you know, after, after 90125, everything changed, and I was a big rock star and everything. The record company wanted me to make another record by myself and solo albums, so they gave me a check of money to make an album. And then I, they asked me what I was going to do. I said, "Well, I'm I'm going to go to uh, I'm going to go to Puerto Rico and uh, play with some big, sing with some big bands, and then go to Cuba and sing with some big bands." I was so into the, that kind of music. It was very deep Latino energy, you know. So they stopped the check, <laughs> and then said, "You can't do that." And I said, "Okay, what what should I be doing?" One second. Okay, sorry, Mitch. Um, yeah, no worries. So, so I made. Uh, I was. So the record company said, "Look, would you like to do a record in 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 Los Angeles, and we can get uh, a band to 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 be your backup band, record with them?" And I said, "Okay, who's the band?" And they said, "Toto." And I said, "Oh, wait a minute, they're all session musicians, and they're really great people. I've met a couple of them." So I did an album called um, City of Angels. Now, I thought it was a very commercial album. For the first time in my career, I wrote with Lamont Dozier, three songs. It was Dozier, Holland, Dozier, um, Holland, Dozier, Holland, who wrote all the great songs of, of Motown. And uh, I thought I was on a, on, a, on a runner to become a pop star for some reason. And uh, so... The album came out and it didn't sell. It didn't sell at all. So about five years ago, I was asked to go up and play at this, at this uh, festival up in northern Quebec. So uh, it might be seven years ago. 
and I was doing my acoustic tour with, with my guitar. And I said, okay, I'll bring my guitar up and I'll come and sing for you guys. But I went up to this little town up in northern Quebec and uh, arrived at the, the hotel. And the, the guys who were doing the festival, they said, come around the corner. Our office is there and we could, you can meet all the people. I said, oh, very nice. So I walked around. We had speakers outside and they were playing City of Angels. So I walked in. I said, you don't, you don't have to play. It's okay. And they said, what do you mean? I said, you're playing this because I'm here. And they said, no, we like this album. And I said, really? Yes, it was in the top 10 in Quebec when it came out. I said, well, it was the only place in the world where it was a hit. Isn't that crazy? I'm not surprised. Fans here, when they when they latch on to something, they will, they will make it. You know, number one. And of course, uh, you know, in the City of Angels, listen, you, you can't go wrong when you have Steve Lukather on an album. That oh, guy, right. Of course. That guy's a, <laughs> that guy's a monster. But, uh, you know. No, but I was always, always very grateful that somebody in this world liked the album. <laughs> yeah, well, but it makes sense that it's Quebec because, uh, you know, we're we're one of those where, where you look at these bands uh, like, like Supertramp, like... We we just latch on to bands with a different sound, and it just becomes. True. And and what we do here is we stick with you. So True. you can have a thirty year career, forty year career. You can fall off the face of the earth everywhere else in the world, and you can come here, and it's going to be sold out, and it's going to be appreciated. I mean, just just look at Dennis D. Young. He he. The last time he came to Quebec, he did a seven night stand, and it wasn't expected. He. Booked one show, it sold out. Booked another one, sold out. Got to seven shows. That's that's incredible. Yes. Yeah, so hopefully we can. Incredible. Yeah. Hopefully we can we can do the same with you and convince you to come up here, and uh, we will. We will. I I know. I, w- I want I want to come up there. It's just that we can't get the promoter, uh, the agent sorted out. Uh, maybe I got to speak to some people. <laughs> Yeah, you you tell them to call me. I I have a, a list of promoters that I work with. I'll okay. I'll, I'll get you booked. And uh, anyway, folks, uh, a thousand hands, Thanks. chapter one. Yeah, my my pleasure. The tour starts at johnanderson.com. dot uh, com. As we say in in Quebec or in Montreal, merci beaucoup. And and thank you, by the way, for all the music over the years. It's it's been inspiring, and and it's been a soundtrack to to my life and many other people's lives. And uh, just thank you. You you have shared your talents with us and. Uh, you know, hey, we're grateful. Thank you. Thank, thank you so much, Mitch. Wish you well. You too. We'll talk soon. Bye bye now. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye bye. All right, perfect. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Rock Talk.